0: We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4 today and wrapping up our series of Christ at the center. It's been said that the book of Philippians is a book about joy. There's a lot of truth to that. But what is rejoicing or joy and what is its source? If we're going to rejoice in all things, why? Where? does that come from? When you're faced with life, Right, rejoicing is fairly easy here. But when we're faced with difficult situations, trials, seasons of life, where do we grab a hold of in order to rejoice? There's two complementary themes that run through The book of Philippians. Joy or rejoicing and Christ at the center. And those two things are joined together. What we've learned from this point up from Philippians is first joy comes from Christ at the center. Then we even were in Philippians 2. Unity, our ability to join together like we prayed or read together at the beginning, unity comes from what? Christ at the center. Last week, Ian walked us through, where does maturity come from? Maturity comes from keeping Christ at the center. I want to remind you that this is the central point, Christ at the center of Paul's letter, remember the kenosis passage in Philippians 2, 5-11, through 11, Paul organizes his whole letter around this central passage, and that passage starts by stating, "...have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus." And then that whole central passage ends with, to the glory of God the Father. There's a lot packed in between there, we've covered a lot of that, but the passage starts with, have this mind which is yours in Christ, and ends with, have this mind, be like Christ for the glory of God the Father. Joy, unity, maturity comes from a life like Christ's that has God the Father at the center. Earlier in our study I said that the letter to the Philippian church, Paul says in various ways he regularly draws upon the Philippians as a colony of Rome, a smaller city patterned after a larger one, a smaller kingdom mimicking a larger kingdom. And his word picture was meant to provide a tangible analogy for the Philippians that they were supposed to live in one kingdom with their anchor in another one. They're supposed to live as representatives in this small community directly tied to the larger community from which their, their reality was established. They were to live as citizens of heaven while they were on earth. In other words, they were to have their anchor secured further out than this world. You with me? So as this letter comes to a close in Philippians chapter 4, we get to cover a lot of ground today. But once again, Paul organizes seemingly several kind of disjointed thoughts, but he organizes his final remarks around the centrality of Christ. So in chapter 4, verse 1 and 2, in particular 2, he urges two women to agree. Why should they agree? Because they're united in the Lord together. In 4, he encourages rejoicing, and not just once, but twice. What are we rejoicing in? The centrality of Christ in the Lord. In verse 6, he says, don't be anxious. Why? Because of the centrality of Christ. Because Christ is close, He's near. The Lord is at hand. In verse 8 of chapter 4, he says, think about these things All of these realities, these truths, where they found most clearly, they're found in Christ. In verse 11, he talks about his contentment, a confidence in the reality of God is going to do exactly what he says. Christ is at the center of Paul's life, and it brings him contentment. And then he closes, and we're not going to get this far in, we've got enough ground to cover, but he closes with a gratitude same way he opened with a gratitude for a partnership and what is their partnership in it's in the centrality of christ and how does he close his book with a benediction that they would have a presence of the grace of christ in their life so as paul kind of gathers his thoughts up to finish out his letter he keeps this main theme central christ is at the center and as Christ is at the center, you can rejoice, you can be unified, and even as Jason opened us, we can mature, we can grow together. So as we head into chapter 4, remember how Paul closes chapter 3, he says this, but our citizenship is anchored farther out than our present reality. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power, by the same power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. As sure as Christ will bring everything into submission to Himself, He will finish the work He started in you. Because your citizenship is someplace else. Your reality is located someplace else. This is not real. Your life is anchored in the place that is more real. You have a citizenship in heaven. But that has specific applications to now. It's not disconnected. Those things are real. It's a both end, And our reality of citizenship in heaven, we have these chapter breaks. They didn't. Paul's thought continues now in the chapter 4, and his thought is because your citizenship is in heaven, you ought to be living certain ways now. Brother Nick, thanks for choosing the reading. It was so perfect and appropriate that we should have gotten ourselves ready by the reading of it. So he begins chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. In other words, now we went through some of this stand firm in chapter 2. But we could paraphrase, and Paul could be saying, Hey, my church family, set your anchor firmly in the reality of your heavenly home. Stand in that truth, your citizenship in heaven. Stand firm in it. I love you. I care for you. This is how he opens chapter 4. I love you, I long for you, stand firm thus. And that thus points back to the end of chapter 3. Stand firm thus in your heavenly citizenship. And again, this isn't just theological Christianese. This is meant to be practically applied. So much so that he jumps right into the practical problem solving of a relationship that's happening in the Philippian church. So Paul expects the truth of chapter 4 verse 1 to be applied in chapter 2 verse 2 and 3. And so these following verses on the heels of verse 1 stand firm thus in the Lord. I plead with Odia and Syntyche are not just some random thought about two bickering women. They're actually, their relationship is tied to this reality of standing firm in the Lord. So he says in verse 2, or I'm sorry, yeah, verse 2, I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. What Paul is saying is, Hey ladies, you're off center. You have drifted from your anchor. Notice he doesn't go into all the details here. He doesn't dredge up what the problems were or what they were talking about or what the problem was. That is a moot point for Paul. You're having a problem, therefore you have drifted from your anchor. You have lost your footing Well, what is his prescription after his diagnosis? It's this. Agree in the Lord. Your drifting from center is evidenced in the fact that you're quarreling and it's causing problems in the rest of the church. Both of you put your anchor In Christ, when Mary and I were house parents working with troubled teens, one of the staff had a couple of students that he was caring for and they could not get along. And so he had them both step into the same bucket. And in order to stay upright, they actually had to hold on to each other. And then he had them talk about their problems while both of their feet were in the same bucket. And somehow having to keep each other from falling over and having to work through their difficulties in this combined space help them with their conflict. Or at least they never wanted to end up in the bucket again. <laughs> but Paul is asking these two women to drop your feet in the same bucket. Put your anchor in the same place And stop the pettiness. Have the same mooring point. So in verse 1 he says, stand firm thus in the Lord. And then he applies this specifically to Eodia and Syntyche and says, agree in the Lord. It's an application of verse 1. But this conflict resolution isn't just limited to these two women. Paul continues verse 3 Yes, and I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. This true companion in verse 4, I believe, is any believer who is a true friend. It's kind of like who is your neighbor? It's a rhetorical question that includes the entire group. If you consider yourself a true friend, then don't just stand there. Do something. Neighbors or true companions don't just stand by minding their own American business because it's not my place. It is our place. What Paul is saying is, if Christ is truly at the center, there's something bigger going on than our community here. This is what we read at the beginning, and it has to do with the gospel and his light going forth into our community. And a lot of times, we just need to get over our little petty problems for the sake of the gospel, get our feet in the bucket, and and live as if Christ is truly at the center. Yeah, true? True. It is our true place, companions. And we are to help each other reset our anchors in Christ because the gospel is at stake, not just your comfort. Circumstances like the one we just described are the great anchor revealer. In particular, interpersonal conflict is the circumstance that most often and most clearly reveals our anchor point. In his small booklet called Motives, Dr. Ed Welch says this, Your attitude towards God will be revealed in your worst human relationships. Mm. Your attitude... Towards the Lord will be revealed in your worst human relationships. In other words, difficult relationships often reveal when you're off center, when your anchor is misplaced. So we see Paul diagnose this practical surface problem of conflict by revealing its source. You're off center, ladies. Your anchor's in the wrong place. Your names are written together in the book of life. And one day you will be worshiping Christ together, and whatever it is that's troubling you right now will not matter. So get there now. You see it? Your citizenship is in heaven and that has practical implications for how you live right now. Your worst problem is not that Syntyche is... or that Euodia is... Your worst problem is you can't get past that and the reality is your anchor is set someplace else. There are many things that reveal our anchor is misplaced, church. But from the passage here, we know there are at least two things that reveal that our anchor is misplaced. And the first one is interpersonal conflict. And the second one is anxiety. Let's keep reading. Rejoice in the Lord always. I Again, I will say it. Rejoice. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So Paul, in this passage, offers a diagnosis there's anxiety. And then he provides two solutions. This is a really tricky passage, church, because it's been misused so many times. Somebody struggling, and we say, oh, be anxious about nothing. And we offer a surface problem to a very deep reality. Oh, just be anxious about nothing. It's not what the passage says. The passage lays out a much grander position, and being anxious not is like the third thing down the list. Paul first offers this reality that there's some anxiety there. But he provides two solutions. And the first one is right before. And he says, remember, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is close. How, do, how does anxiety go away? Through the presence of the Lord. Bring your mind into submission that the Lord is near you and He's paying attention to you. This rejoicing that He offers in chapter 4, right at the beginning, is we're going to get there, but I'm offering first this diagnosis of this anxiety problem and rejoicing actually kills anxiety. But you need to know it's not just... This surface, I just need to rejoice and hope my anxiety goes away. See, it doesn't work. I tried that. I'm anxious and I tried rejoicing and my anxiety is still there. You're missing the point. You with me? Paul says, remember, the Lord is close. And I really want to talk about what does it look like for us to rejoice. I have a real burden for us this today. I would imagine if I polled us and said, what does rejoicing really look like in your life? I had a hard time with this when I posed the question to myself. What does that practically look like? I have a real burden for us to know what rejoicing practically looks like. And it's much deeper than just saying certain words or thanking the Lord for your car and your house and your wonderful family. It's deeper than that. But Paul offers his diagnosis, there's anxiety here, and he provides two solutions. Remember the Lord is close. Bring to mind that He's near you, He's paying attention. Recall that He has chosen you as His child. You're a citizen of heaven. Your name is written in the book of life. And so then the second thing he offers is then pray in a spirit of thanksgiving. First, get your mind around the fact that you're a citizen of heaven and you've been called by God. That will change your prayer life. Remember, the Lord is close and pray in a spirit of thanksgiving. But before he gets to this diagnosis and solution, he provides a prevention. I hope you caught it. I hinted to it. What's the preventative medicine for anxiety and conflict? It's rejoicing. And it's so effective that he says it twice. Rejoice. In the Lord, always. Let me repeat myself because this is really important. Rejoice. These two parallel themes, rejoicing or joy, and Christ at the center. I'm going I'm to encourage us that rejoicing is the practical way that we keep Christ at the center. Circumstances that cause anxiety or unrest or discouragement, like transition times or illness or job change or removal of the familiar or death or loss or seasons of difficulty are storms that blow debris and water away and reveal where our anchor is placed. When I was studying, I was looking up pictures, and there's a, one picture that there's this boat and the water and debris had washed, and the anchor is up in the shallow water, and you can see where the anchor is and where the boat is in the background. These storms of life tend to push everything back and reveal what our anchor is set in. And what we're seeing in this passage is that the antidote for conflict and for anxiety is that Christ is near. He's at the center. So rejoice in him. But rejoicing must be more than just an admonishment to do it. And this is why the letter has to be more than just rejoice. Rejoicing must have a source. And true rejoicing, true rejoicing, the kind that Paul has here that allows him to be chained to a Philippian jailer, chained to him, and he's still pronouncing grace and blessing and writing letters, the reason he's able to do that in the presence of really bad circumstances is because Christ is at the center It's not because he's sitting there, really feeling bad for himself, trying to manifest, i just got to think about all the good things in my life. No, it's because Christ is at the center of Paul's life. True rejoicing is only possible when Christ is at the center. In other words, we can't truly rejoice unless Christ is our anchor point. I think this is elusive for us. I think it's difficult. And I don't think I'm just speaking for myself. And I think that's true because I I believe we attempt to secure joy apart from Christ. We don't like the feeling of not being joyful. We don't like the feeling of circumstances running our lives. We don't like... The feeling of being yanked all over the place by bad circumstances, and we don't like how we feel, and so what we want to do is to secure joy without putting Christ at the center. We just want joy. Christ just becomes the vehicle to help us get joy. Then we've just missed the point. He's not the center. Our feeling better, our rejoicing is the center, not Christ. And Paul is saying, no, Christ needs to be the center of your joy. And so Paul says the same thing and he repeats it over and over throughout the book. Rejoice. And by the way, this isn't a suggestion. It's actually he's commanding it. I'm telling you to do something here. Rejoice. It means to take joy. To take joy and ground it in something much bigger than joy itself. So let me, launch, let me launch a definition for rejoicing. It means to fix your reality and hope on what Christ has said in a way that produces gratitude, peace, happy contentment, gentleness, and patience, and therefore it manifests itself in your physical appearance it's not just something that happens here but it actually tangibly changes our physical appearance so let me use this as an example kate okay, this is kind of a makeshift well it's an, it's like a big grappling hook okay but it's an anchor for today In order for us to really get an idea of what rejoicing is, I'm using this word picture of setting an anchor because I want us to think about rejoicing differently than we have in the past. I think it's really important. It's not just some spiritual exercises that typically fails miserably. True? I mean, if we're being real? I want us to see rejoicing as a tangible thing that we participate in And allow God, allow Christ to be center of our life. And so rejoicing is not just placing our anchor in whatever we would hope and then say, hooray, when bad things happen. As if we're trying to talk ourselves into it. So for instance, if I'm looking for joy in my life, and I come over here, and I'm hoping that Randy is going to supply this joy for me, then I'm really in trouble. If my anchor is set in him, and this is my hope, is that Randy does for me what I'm hoping he's going to do, I'm in trouble. Now, do you realize why conflict reveals wrong anchors? reveals, this would be James's argument in James chapter 3 or 4, we don't have time to go into it, but James would say, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Because you want something and you can't have it. James diagnoses interpersonal problems because we have our anchor points hooked into people and it doesn't belong there. Or we'll say, let, let me re- l- let's just represent Mr. John here, he's a banker, he's my accountant so i put my anchor in money if if my money or my bank account is my anchor point church i'm in trouble yeah or maybe or maybe we come over here and we give it to miss debbie i'll let you hold on to that and this represents the government man i'm really i'm really trusting in 2024 baby church i'm gonna i'm gonna say that when we start going around and we're putting our anchor and we're we're looking and we're we're putting our anchor and we look we look like a crazy man on the deck of a ship do we not and what happens is the world sees us and by the way these are all good things this is how we justify them. This is no surprise to us we we really like to to put our I, our idols and tuxedos. And then we talk about to other people how good they look and how it's so necessary and he's really actually very kind and it proves because my idol is in a tuxedo, it proves that the problem is really over here or over there. And if I could just get my circumstances to straighten up enough, I'll finally be able to rejoice. Paul says, you're missing the point. You with me? When we start wandering all over... The world looks at us and says, that's not reasonable behavior. That's not reasonable. That person looks like they're adrift. That person looks like they have no anchor. True? Hey team, hear me. No Christian who is chosen by God, who has the love and acceptance guaranteed from our Heavenly Father. It's secure. Who cannot be touched by any circumstance without God's permission. And has their eternal security set in heaven. No Christian should be running around in a panic searching for an anchor point. You have one. Rejoice in it. What does that mean, to rejoice in it? A couple verses to help us, and then I want to continue our analogy. James 1 2 says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know. You know something. There's something that you know that causes you to consider it joy, or hebrews six19 through twenty says we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Jesus has gone into the throne room where God Sits. We talked about this when we were way back in Genesis. Christ has gone in and he has run the anchor through the veil. Sin couldn't go in there. So he went in on his righteousness and he hooks our reality in our citizenship in heaven in the throne room. And he says, that's your anchor point for your soul. Not your spouse, not homeschooling your kids, not your government or the fact that you have taken over the Senate. Your anchor is in God Himself in heaven. And rejoicing means that I fix my eyes On where Christ has planted my firm anchor. And I meditate on that. And I make it true in my life. I believe what Christ has said. In a way that produces gratitude and peace. And happy contentment. And a gentleness. And a patience. And therefore it manifests itself. In my physical appearance. I think we overcomplicate this. Let me tell you what this has meant for me. I've had to move myself intellectually past, yeah, I know that already, and get to the fact, is this my reality or not? I deserved wrath. I've earned it. With my complete and utter selfishness. That has manifested itself... I'm, I'm confessing sin publicly. This is true. All through my life. I was raised as the center of the universe. And somehow I still think I am. My selfishness has caused me to act in ways and treat other people as if they're resources for my own happiness. I deserve the wrath of God. But I've been justified by grace he has counted his righteousness to me therefore I'm taking great joy in the fact that I have a brand new changed disposition my life is radically different because what I do not earn I have received I am now dead to sin I used to live that way But that way of living has no power over me. Because of Christ, I am dead to that. And I am activated to righteousness. Church, what am I doing? I am rejoicing. Do you hear me? I want us to see this. I am practically, when I rehearse that in my mind, I am setting my anchor in the place that is the only place that will hold my soul. It is in the gospel of Christ. And then I set my anchor there, and literally it causes me to do this. It's true. It's true. My circumstances are troublesome. They bother me. But this is where my life is. Rejoicing causes my mouth to curl up at the corners. It's that practical. But not if it's just some surface endeavor, i am just got to go through my gratitude list. You following me? I meditate on this reality. Rejoicing, you can't get rejoicing, I'm going to argue, you can't get rejoicing without starting in the gospel. The good news of Christ. Because it's my anchor point. It establishes me. And it sets me. Here's what I've been doing. Not just in the mornings. But I'm working on this throughout the day. When I start rehearsing this reality. By the way. I've also had to move my gratitude list in the morning. I try to start with gratitude. I've had to change it from, thank you for my house and my car and my wonderful kids and these good things that I have and what you're doing in our family and what you're doing in our church. Thank you for these things. And I've had to start my gratitude with the gospel. Man, I have an anchor for my soul. I was this way, now I'm that way. And then... I make my posture and my face obey God's truth. It's rejoicing. You hear me? I literally, we literally have to go, that changes my face. That changes the way I stand. Sometimes I will say out loud to myself, hey, or I've been doing this. Rob. Change it. Get rooted, grounded. It's true. We don't know how to rejoice because we don't make it that practical. Are you with me? If God's Word is true, then we make our mind and our face and our posture obey. This is a reasonableness made known. It's interesting that Paul says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. How does that happen? It happens when we tell our face and our posture to obey the Lord. And we can do that and it not be legalism. How? Because it's attached to to truth So again, in verse 5, Paul says, let your reasonableness be known. In other words, what you are making your heart do, make your face and your posture do. It's interesting that in, in both here and then earlier in the book, Paul calls us to obedience first and then mind change. Man, I've always thought it was, okay, change your mind and then change your obedience. But here twice in Philippians, Paul says, change your face and your posture and then go back and think about it and get yourself and and get your mind to line up. So he says, let your reasonableness be made known to all. But hear me, if all we're doing is putting our shoulders back and, you know, that will eventually die, right? So then Paul continues and he says, but keep your mind staying engaged with truth. So then in verse 8, that's when he says, finally brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things what you have learned and received and heard from and seen in me practice these things and now for the second time he says and the god of peace will be with you think about these things practice these things again paul is in prison chained to a guard and he's thriving. Why? Because the gospel is. When he gets to the end of the book, he's offering, hey, I send greetings, and he says, You know who else sends you greetings? Are those of Caesar's household. Well, how is Caesar's household coming to Christ? Because Paul's work in the gospel right where he is. He sees it moving forward. His anchor is placed beyond his circumstances. Paul's anchor is in his citizenship in heaven. By the way, this is verse 12, the secret of his contentment. When I was studying, I'm thinking, he says secret of contentment. What does he mean? What's the secret? This is his secret. Christ is my center. My anchor is in him. This verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength, is not just, you know, for runners and UFC fighters. This is not just a verse patched on to make me believe that I can do hard physical things. Paul is saying, Christ is my anchor. And in him and in the gospel moving forward, I am strengthened. Therefore, I can do whatever I need to in whatever circumstance. Because what? Because Christ is my center. My anchor is in Him. In my study, I found an article of an author who's also a speaker, and they were making this same point. I want to read this as we close, and then I'm going to make application. The author says this, Recently I found myself in rare empathy with Paul while giving a retreat. As a writer who speaks, I was struggling to communicate in an odd second language which is talking out loud. And in this closing hour of the weekend, I offered to the group the unremarkable unremarkable theological premise that believers are summoned to organize their lives with God at the center, and a hand shot up in the room. Isn't that rather harsh? The man objected. Being a slow thinker, I considered his question for a moment. I hadn't expected God at the center could be a doubtful premise for believers. But didn't Paul insist on this centrality with the declaration, He is before all things and in Him all things hold together? To Paul, Christ is the cosmic glue of reality. Integrity is discovered by rooting our values in His radiant perspective. Paul declares Christ is before, Christ is head, Christ is at the core, Christ is the beginning, Christ is the fullness. Christ reconciles human and divine, past and present, future, heaven and earth, binding all things together. Yes, I agreed with the man finally. It's very harsh. Truth can be stark, like loss, suffering, limitation, death. Truth makes demands on us which we prefer to flee or at least soften with nuances and loopholes. So we accept God as central, except maybe for family and work and responsibilities and pleasures for country and political convictions. It is hard to claim without asterisks that Christ is at the center, that our path is through Him and our lives orbit His will. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Harsh, bold, and exacting, uncompromising as worldviews go. If God is the all-powerful, all-knowing, ever-present Alpha and Omega, if God is sovereign, then to deny God's centrality in our lives is to deny the definition of divinity. God cannot ride spiritual shotgun or be a pal in the pocket for times of need. If God is not the all-important one, We shrink divinity to a more convenient size, shoehorning God into an unobtrusive role. And once demoted, God ceases to be God. Church, here's our application as we consider this passage. Four things I want to encourage us in. One, I want us to heed, anchor, location, caution lights. Relational conflict and, and and anxieties are benevolent warning signs letting us know that our anchor is in the wrong place. You with me? If we got anxieties in our life and we're having lots of interpersonal conflict, there's a dashboard light on. Accept it as a benevolent violence. Don't 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 give in to the temptation to make it about somebody else or about your circumstances. It's not. Truth, it's not. These are warning lights that let you know Christ is not your center. So heed these lights and then receive them. The Lord is making you aware that you have pulled up anchor and you've drifted. And He wants you to replace your anchor in Him. So heed the anchor location caution lights. And when you're humble enough to heed, repent and turn. Because it was sin that you placed your anchor someplace else. It wasn't just an oops. You thought you had a more viable option. You thought God was less than and that you were more than. And you put your anchor someplace else. Repent from that and turn. Here's some stops That we need to just stop doing sometimes. Stop fretting about your circumstances, present or future. Paul says that the truths he has been presenting are the secret to contentment, whether you're starving or well fed, while you're naked or clothed, whether you're free or in jail. This, Paul says, is contentment regardless of your circumstances. So stop telling yourself your rejoicing is contingent on your circumstances. Stop doing that. Another thing we need to stop doing sometimes is holding people hostage because you chose to put your anchor in them. It's not their problem you're foolish enough to put your anchor in somebody. Jeremiah 17 says, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh flesh his strength. You're a fool for putting your anchor in somebody else. So stop holding them them hostage to your foolishness. Or like we learned in men's study last month, two months ago. Stop turning your eyes to worthless things. We spend a lot of time, church, on things that aren't true. A lot of time on stuff that's not true. And then we wonder why we're struggling to rejoice. Repent and turn. Third, joyfully. Make your mind and your posture and your face obey the truth of what God has said. And the way we do that is the fourth thing. Thinking about things that are true. Mostly rejoicing in the good news of what Christ has done for us. Church, more and more, I want myself, I want us as a church to be rejoicing in the simple message That I deserved wrath, I've been justified by grace, I've been counted righteous, I have joy, My, my present makes sense, my eternity is secure, I'm dead to sin, I'm alive to Christ. That's life changing news for us. And we need to bring ourselves in obedience to it. Practical ways you could do that is keep a daily journal of gratitude about what the gospel has done in you and for you who you are in Christ keep a daily journal of it and then all the good things too the house the cars the, the abundance that we have because of Christ those those deserve our gratitude but first and foremost where our eternity is set where our citizenship is those are the things we want to be thankful first and then also just give thanks out loud for eternal things with present realities Wake up in the morning with your, with your spouse or your family around the table before you go to bed at night. Give thanks. Express verbally gratitude for the eternal things we possess because God has been so gracious and kind to us. Father, thank You for Your Word. Teach us this practical reality of setting our anchor, rejoicing, taking joy in You, where our heavenly reality is established forever in Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen.